Welcome back to USMLE Listen Microbiology Chapter 8. It's all about fungi. And because I'm a fun guy, <laughs> on this episode we will go over some crucial USMLE related facts on different fungi we have to know about and for the exam. Where they come from, their pathologic features, signs and symptoms, and treatment. As always, please email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com. Anything you need clear or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid, Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can also follow me or message me on Instagram at M-A-R-K-J-L-A-B-E-L-L-A or Mark J. Labella. And with that, let's begin. So let's begin with some generalities about fungi. First of all, fungi are eukaryotic. They have ADS ribosomes. ADS ribosomes. They have a mitochondria, and just like humans, they have a true nucleus. Their walls are made of complex carbohydrate cell walls like chitin, glucan, and mannan. Fungi have a very important thing we call ergosterol. Ergosterol is a major membrane sterol. And let's remember that imidazole or azole antifungals inhibit synthesis of ergosterol. Polyene antifungals, they bind more tightly to ergosterol than cholesterol. Fungi are known as heterotrophs or heterotrophic, which means they require organic carbon. The word Saprophytic or saprophobic refers to funguses living on dead organic material. When we mean say parasitic, that means fungus living on another living organism. So what do we have to know for the USMLE exam? It's important to know their morphology first and foremost and where that fungus came from. For the fungal morphology, we're looking at hyphae, which are filamentous cellular units of molds and mushrooms. And there are six ways we can describe fungal morphology, and they are non-septate hyphae. They have no cross walls, broad hyphae with irregular width, or they can be broad angle of branching hyphae. Number two. Septate hyphae. They're the ones that have the cross walls and their width is very regular and tube-like. Number three. Hyphal coloration. The color of the hyphae is also important, so they can either be one, demaceous, which means dark colored, gray or olive, and number two, hyaline, which means they're clear. Number four. There's something called a mat of hyphae, which is otherwise known as a mycelium. Number five. Yeasts. Yeasts are single-celled organisms, round to oval, and yes, they are still fungi. Number six. Last but not least, there's something called a dimorphic fungi. These are fungi that are able to convert from hyphal to yeast or yeast-like forms. And another type of dimorphic fungi is what's called a thermally dimorphic fungi, which in the cold stay in their mold forms. And four very important examples of dimorphic fungi are HBCS, histoplasma, blastomyces, coccidioides, and sporothrix. HBCS are dimorphic fungi. Those are very high yield in the USMLE exam, so remember these four, as our warm bodies change the shape of these dimorphic fungi. There's another one that we have to remember in terms of morphology, and so we go into number seven, which are pseudohyphae. And pseudohyphae are seen in Candida albicans. They're hyphae with constrictions at each septum. So when you see these filamentous cellular units that are cut off and separated at each septum, 
then you're looking at something that's very common, Candida. Candida albicans. Now let's get into spore types. Spore types. Number one is Canidia. Canidia are asexual spores. They're formed off hyphae. They're very common and very important to remember that Canidia are airborne. Canidia are airborne. Wanna hear something gross? The average person inhales up to 40 Canidia per hour. And with that, let's move on to number two, which are Blastoconidia. Blastoconidia are buds on yeasts. So B for buds on yeast and they're asexual budding daughter yeast cells. It's interesting to note that yeasts such as Candida albicans and Cryptococcus neoformans produce budded cells known as Blastoconidia. Number three are Arthroconidia. Arthroconidia are asexual spores formed by a joint. You mean kind of like arthritis? Why yes, arthur or arthro literally means joint in Latin. And some medically important significant pathogens include Coccidioides imides and Coccidioides podassaceae, which are both causative agents of coccidiomycosis known as San Joaquin Valley Fever. And those are transmitted through arthroconidia. Coccidioidomycosis caused by arthroconidia. And number four on our spores are endospores and spherules. And distinct spherules with endospores are only found in coccidioides. These are spores inside the spherules in tissues. But hello, Mark, endospores also exist with bacteria such as Bacillus cereus, Bacillus anthracis, Clostridium botulinum, and Clostridium tetani. That is true, but first of all, we're in the fungi chapter now, and I'm talking about spherical, thick-walled, endosporulating spherules with endospores inside of them, and those are very distinct with the fungus, or the fungi, coccidioides. Endospores with spherules equals coccidioides. I'm going to repeat this later, but it's important to know because repetition is key. Knowing where a person came from and where they got the disease is also vital in knowing the answer to the question on your exam. For example, if someone is coming from Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys, the disease is most likely histoplasmosis. Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys, histoplasmosis. Oh my gosh, the high in Ohio can like remind you of the high in histoplasmosis. That's a great idea. And if someone is coming from Eastern and Central United States, especially the Great Lakes, the disease is most likely blastomycosis. It's so great you had a blast. And if the person is coming from southwestern United States or California, C for California equals a C for coccidioidomycosis. Southwestern United States and California equals coccidioidomycosis. And when you have a patient coming from a Latin America and places like Paraguay, you will have paracoccidiomycosis. Let's talk about microscopic methods and special fungal stains. Very important for the exam as well. The first one is KOH wet mount. Potassium hydroxide. So what KOH does is it degrades human tissues, leaving hyphae and yeast visible. The fungal color will be colorless or hyaline, which are refractive green or light olive. Or it can either be brown, which are seen with demaceous fungal elements. Another method is a periodic acid shift stain. PAS is a staining method used to detect polysaccharides such as glycogen. The cell walls of the fungi will stain magenta, but this only works on living fungi. 
while in contrast you can use the silver stain. Silver stain will stain both living and dead fungal organisms. Its fungal color will be gray to black and you use silver stains on organisms like Pneumocystis gerovici. Another preparation is Calcifor white which can be done on wet mounts. It will result to bright blue or white on black and scrapings or sections of fluorescent microscope are needed. You can use Calcifor white and fungal cultures for diagnosing a fungal oncomycosis whose causative agent is Tinea unguium. And the last preparation I'd like to talk about is India ink. You can use India ink wet mount of CSF sediments which are colorless cells with halos or capsules on a black particulate background used for diagnosis of things like Cryptococcus neoformans. Cryptococcus neoformans by the India ink stain. So when we culture fungus, it can be cultured in the sabarad agar. Sab's a fungi. I'm not only a fun guy, but Sab is also a fun guy named Sabarod Agar. You can either use Sabarod Agar or Blood Agar with antibiotics. Then you identify the culture either through morphology or by PCR technique with nucleic probes. You can also do serology if you're looking for patient antibodies. But fungal antigen detection in the CSF or serum can be done by cryptococcal capsular polysaccharide detection by latex particle agglutination or LPA or counter immuno electrophoresis. You can also do skin tests. Skin tests are most useful for epidemiology or demonstration of energy to an agent you know the patient is infected with, especially if the patient has grave prognosis. Otherwise, like tuberculosis, a skin test only indicates exposure to the agent itself. And that's it for the generalities. On the next section, we'll start with non-systemic fungal infections. Yay! Welcome to non-systemic fungal infections. And we'll break down non-systemic fungal infections to uh, number one, superficial infections, which include malassezia fervor. Number two, cutaneous fungal infections, such as dermatophytes, which include your trichophyton, microsporum, and, and epidermophyton, as well as your tineus. And number three, which are your subcutaneous mycoses, which include the very important Sporothrix schenkii. Number one. Superficial infections in keratinized tissues. And the organism that we have to worry about is Malassezia furfur. Malassezia furfur can be seen in a normal skin flora seen and recognized as a lipophilic yeast. Malassezia has a unique ability to dissolve fats, lipids, and oils and utilize them. And they cause the disease pityriasis or tinea versicolor. And all they do is they infect superficially on keratinized cells. Malassezia fervor causing pityriasis or tinea versicolor needs moist and warm climates and they cause hypopigmented spots on the chest and the back, looking like a blotchy suntan type of thing. A KOH wet mat of skin scales will help you determine and find these spaghetti and meatball looking things, like kind of like bacon and eggs. They have yeast clusters and short curved septate hyphae. Under a woods lamp, they're gonna look coppery orange with fluorescence, and you treat them with a certain something called selenium sulfide. Selenium sulfide treats malassezia furfur. It's superficial, so it's rarely seen in blood, except for the fact that fungemia with malassezia furfur can be seen in premature infants on intravenous lipid supplements. And remember earlier when I said that malassezia furfur loves lipids? It's lipophilic? This is exactly how premature infants given lipid supplements are infected in the blood with malassezia furfur. The second category on our non-systemic fungal infections are cutaneous fungal 
fungal infections without systemic disease, and those are caused by yeast or dermatophytic infections. Yeast skin infections are commonly cutaneous or mucocutaneous candidiasis Candida and may disseminate in compromised patients and are discussed with opportunistic fungi. And when I say dermatophytes, these are a group of fungi. They're filamentous fungi, filamentous, and they're monomorphic. They infect only skin and hair and or nails, but they do not disseminate, and there are three genera that are associated with dermatophytes. One is trichophyton. Trichophyton infects skin, hair, and nails. The second one is microsporum, which infects hair and skin. The third one is epidermophyton, which infects nail and skin. Let's repeat that for clarity. Trichophyton, skin, hair, and nails, all three. Microsporum, hair and skin. Epidermophyton, nails and skin. The disease caused by dermatophytes are dermatophytic infections, which equals your tinnias or your ringworms. In all of the tinnias, itching is your most common symptom, and if it's highly inflammatory, it's generally from animals or zoophilic, such as your microsporum canis coming from your cats and dogs. Microsporum affects hair and skin. But if there's a little inflammation, but if there's a little inflammation, it's generally coming from another person, another human being, such as your arthropophilic tinea capitis caused by Microsorum aduinii. And when I say tinea capitis, I mean a ringworm of the scalp. But the most serious form of it, of tinea capitae, is a favus. Favus. Tinea favosa. Tinea favosa. Which causes permanent hair loss and is very, very contagious. So if you don't want to go bald, stay away from Tinea favosa. Tinea barbae is a ringworm of the beard region, or your beard. Tinea corporis is dermatophytic infection of the glabrous skin. And what is glabrous skin? It's a skin that is smooth, even surface, having an epidermal covering that is totally or relatively free or devoid of hair. Tinea cruris is jock itch, crew for crotch. Tinea pedis is athlete's foot. And tinea inguium is ringworm of the nails. In diagnosis, microsporum fluoresces a bright yellow green in a woods lamp. And in KOH mount of nail or skin scrapings, you'll see arthrocnidia and hyphae. Arthrocnidia with hyphae in microsporum. You treat these mucocutaneous or cutaneous infections with topical imidazoles or tolnaftate. You don't only have to use topical measures, you can also do oral imidazoles or griseofulvin, where the hairs are infected or any skin contact is painful. And the most important thing to remember is when you're treating it, you keep the area dry. And you watch out for the id reaction, spelled with ind, as in the ind in dermatophyted. Id is an allergic response to circulating fungal antigens. Like what exactly is an id reaction? An id reaction is otherwise known as a disseminated eczema or generalized eczema. And though it can be caused by other things, it's usually caused by dermatophytes. And its end result is acute dermatitis developing after days or weeks at skin locations distant from the initial inflammatory and infectious site, also known as an autoexematous response. So your body recognizes these dermatophytids. It's causing your immune system to overreact to the dermatophyted antigens. 
it's stimulating your normal T cells, it's causing skin irritation, and it's spreading the cytokines through hematogenous means. And that is what you call an id reaction. Id reaction, letter I and letter D as in delta. Now let's move on to subcutaneous mycoses caused by Sporothrix schenkii. Now, Sporothrix schenkii is a dimorphic fungus, which means it has two forms. The first one is in the environmental form. The environmental form is on plant material worldwide as hyphae with rosettes and sleeves of conidia. So from the environment, you'll have a traumatic transplantation through rose or plum tree thorns and wire or sphagnum moss. And once it gets inside of you, Sporothrix will transform into its tissue form. And the tissue form looks like cigar-shaped yeast. Sporothrix, rosette in the environment and cigar in tissues. The disease it'll cause is called sporotrichosis, otherwise known as Rose Gardener's disease. Sporotrichosis causes subcutaneous or lymphocutaneous lesions. You treat that with itraconazole or potassium iodide in milk. Sporothrix schenkii can also cause a pulmonary type of disease. Pulmonary sporotrichosis can either be acute or chronic and is seen in urban alcoholics, particularly the homeless. Hence the term alcoholic rose garden sleeper disease. Schenkii as it shanks you with its thorns and EI for itraconazole. That is the treatment for sporothrix schenkii or you can also use amphotericin B. Itraconazole is the same as your other azole antifungals as it inhibits the fungal-mediated synthesis of ergosterol via the inhibition of lanosterol 14-alpha-dimethylase. Itraconazole inhibits lanosterol 14-alpha-dimethylase. And because your itraconazole also inhibits your cytochrome P450-3A4, we should be cautious when we're using it with other medications. And amphotericin B is another option, and its mechanism of action is it binds ergosterol, and it forms pores that cause rapid leakage of monovalent ions such as your potassium, sodium, hydrogen, and chloride, and cause subsequent fungal death. Amphotericin B pokes holes creating pores. And there you have it for your non-systemic fungal infections. Yay! Welcome to Deep Fungal Infections. In the last section, we talked about HBCS being your dimorphic fungi in the S of your subcutaneous mycoses is Sporothrix schenkii. But in your deep fungal infections, you have your H, B, and C. Your histoplasma, your blastomyces, and your coccidioides being your dimorphic fungi and are your classic pathogens in your deep fungal infections. H, B, and C, all three of them, all three of these pathogens will cause three different diseases. One will be acute pulmonary disease, which can either be asymptomatic or resolving in about 95% of the cases. The second one is chronic pulmonary, and the third is disseminated infections. Most people that actually get this infection won't see a doctor, or they won't need to. But when we do end up seeing them, we diagnose through sputum cytology, 
Using calciflor white is helpful, and we can also use sputum cultures on blood agar and special fungal media such as your inhibitory mold agar or sabarods. You can also use a peripheral blood culture which are useful for histoplasma since it circulates in your reticuloendothelial system cells or your RES cells. Peripheral blood culture for histoplasma. So let's begin with our first deep fungal infection. Number one. The H in HBC is histoplasma capsulatum. HBC, of course, are dimorphic, so histoplasm is especially dimorphic, and it has an environmental form, which are hyphae with microconidia and tuberculate macroconidia. And speaking of environment, its endemic regions are eastern Great Lakes, Ohio, Mississippi, and Missouri riverbeds. How you remember that histoplasma comes from these places is his missus says hi from Ohio. Histoplasma comes from Miss Mississippi and Miss Zuri riverbeds saying hi in histoplasma from Ohio. Histoplasma his missus says hi from Ohio. Histoplasma is found in soil and dust that's enriched with bird or bat feces. Bird or bat feces. And you'll see this in a lot of practice exams, the word spelunking, which means cave exploring. Your exam may also mention something about coming from chicken coops or bulldozing starling roosts. And starlings are these type of birds that come in these huge flocks. And everyone loves to see them because they're incredible and beautiful to watch. And the second form of histoplasma capsulatum is the tissue form. The tissue form are small intracellular yeasts with narrow neck on bud and no capsule. They have no capsule. They're facultative intracellular parasites, so they live inside the cell. And what cells do they live in? They live in the reticuloendothelial cell, or your RES cells. They're tiny. Histoplasma is tiny. And they can get 30 or so in one human cell. Histoplasma causes the fungus flu, which is a pneumonia. It's asymptomatic or acute, but resolving. It's self-resolving. A self-resolving pneumonia with flu-like symptomatology. But, and this is a big but, histoplasma can also cause hepatosplenomegaly. The hepatosplenomegaly may be present even in acute pulmonary infections that are self-resolving. And that's because histoplasma is a facultative intracellular organism residing in your reticuloendothelial cells. It is very common in summer and endemic areas, including children or newcomers. 80% of adults are skin test positive in some areas. Histoplasma can be anywhere because it's so tiny and you can just breathe it in. It's the people that are immunosuppressed that are in most danger of it. Its lesions have a tendency to calcify as they heal. And of course, with T-cell suppression or T-cell immunosuppression, you will have a potential for relapse. Histoplasma can also cause disseminated infections as mucocutaneous lesions are common and also common in AIDS patients in endemic areas. You treat histoplasma with itraconazole for mild and amphotericin B for severe cases. Our next causative agent of deep fungal infections are coccidioides emitis. As one of our HBCSs, this is a dimorphic fungus, so it has an environmental form which is hyphae and it breaks up into arthroconidia. Remember that this is found in the desert sand. Coccidioides is found in the desert sand. 
And when I say desert, you should think about its endemic regions, which are the very hot and dry southwestern United States, such as your Southern California weather, especially in the San Joaquin Valley, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, and Nevada. So these arthroconidia are inhaled, round up, and enlarged, becoming spherules. These spherules are inside which the cytoplasm walls off and then they start forming endospores inside of the spherules. And thus, your tissueform or the second form of this is spherules with endospores. Coccidioides, spherules with endospores. So the disease that it causes is a valley fever which is asymptomatic to, to self-resolving pneumonia. It can cause desert bumps. It can have skin manifestations. Desert bumps. Otherwise known as your erythema nodosum. It can also cause arthritis. The arthrocanidia causing arthritis by coccidioides are generally good prognostic signs. So having the desert bumps on your skin and the arthritis are actually all right. They're good signs. Very common in the endemic regions that I mentioned. And, and with coccidioides, you have pulmonary lesions that have a tendency to calcify as they heal. Both histoplasma and coccidioides have a tendency to calcify. H and C, they calcify. However, however, you have these systemic infections that are a big problem, especially in patients with AIDS and immunocompromised patients that are living in these endemic regions. You can get meningitis and you can also get mucocutaneous lesions with them. And especially with pregnant women or women who are pregnant, they have a tendency to disseminate in the third trimester of pregnancy. So how do you treat coccidiomycosis? In patients with mild to moderate coccidiomycosis, you treat them with azoles, such as your hydroconazole. It's severe cases you give them amphotericin B. Let's move on to number three. In your HBC dimorphics, which happen to be your pathogens seen in deep fungal infections. Here we talk about Blastomyces dermatitidis. Of course, Blastomyces are dimorphic. I don't need to mention that, but they do have an environmental form which are of hyphae and with nondescript conidia, which means they have no fancy arrangements. They're just simple. Their association is not definitive, but it appears to be associated with rotting wood such as beaver dams. It's endemic in the upper Great Lakes and Ohio as well as your Mississippi riverbeds plus the southeastern seaboard of the United States and northern Minnesota into Canada. And since it's and once it gets into the human body, it transforms into its tissue form, which are broad-based budding yeasts and double refractile cell wall. But that double refractile cell wall is not a capsule. Don't get confused. So when you're looking at blastomycosis or blastomyces through the microscope, these broad budding yeasts look like two coins stuck together. I mean, granted, one might be bigger than the other, like a nickel and a quarter, but there's still blastomycosis with broad-based budding. Speaking of blastomycosis, it's an acute and chronic pulmonary disease. We consider it less likely to self-resolve than histoplasma or coccidioides. Blastomycosis will need to be treated most of the time, even in acute infections. And it, not to mention that it also has a disseminated disease. But the treatment 
treatment is the same across the board for your HBCs, you treat it with itraconazole if it's a mild infection and amphotericin B if it's a severe infection. Just remember your BBB, your triple Bs, blastomyces is broad based and one clinical clue in importance as well is where they come from as I said before. Just remember that your histoplasma comes from your Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys while blastomycosis may be in the same area, Great Lakes and US and Eastern Central United States, but blastomycosis has a wider range, right? So it could be coming from all the way from Canada down to North South Carolina. And don't forget their huge differences in morphology. Your blastomycosis has broad-based budding and double refractile cell walls in their yeasts, while your histoplasma can come from your bird or bat excrement, or bird and bat poopoo, and histoplasma are small intracellular yeasts most likely living in your reticuloendothelial cells. Yay! And welcome to the next section, which is opportunistic fungi. And I'm going to be talking about five of them. Aspergillus fumigatus, Candida albicans, Cryptococcus neoformans, Mucorrhizopus absidia, otherwise collectively known as Zygomycophyta, and the fifth one is Pneumocystis gerovici, as the artist formerly known as Pneumocystis corinii. All of these are considered opportunistic fungi because they take advantage of an opportunity not normally available to them, such as a host being immunocompromised. And let's start with the first one. Number one is Aspergillus fumigatus. It's a monomorphic filamentous fungus which is dichotomously branching, generally acute angles, a frequent septate hyphae with 45 degree angles, cute angles that is, and one of our major recyclers. It's seen in compost pits and moldy marijuana. Its diseases or predisposing conditions include allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Seen in asthma, cystic fibrosis, and growing in mucus plugs in the lung but not penetrating the lung tissue. And we have to remember that allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis is not an infection, it's caused by asthma and cystic fibrosis. It's just a hypersensitivity disease and reaction. Number two, aspergillus can also cause a fungus ball. Fungus ball. It's free in preformed lung cavities. And what you'll have to do with that is a surgical removal to reduce coughing, which may induce pulmonary hemorrhaging. A third disease caused by pergolus is invasive aspergillosis. Predisposing conditions include severe neutropenia, aka severely low neutrophil count, chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD, CF, or cystic fibrosis, as well as burns. And if we correlate that, both aspergillus and pseudomonas attack the same predisposing conditions, as both of them belong to a group called catalase-positive organisms. And if you remember our mnemonic, it goes a little certain something like this. Catalase positive are notoriously bubbling hassle. Catalase positive are notoriously bubbling hassle. The C in catalase is C in candida. The P in positive is the P in pseudomonas. The N in notoriously is the N in nocardia. The B in bubbling is for the B in Borcholderia cepacea. And then hassle is spelled out. H for H. pylori, A for aspergillus, S for staphylococci, S for serratia, L for listeria, and E for E. coli. 
catalase positive or notoriously bubbling hassle. Now do you see why aspergillus can become invasive? It invades the tissues causing infarcts and hemorrhage. Aspergillus also does nasal colonization which can lead to pneumonia or meningitis. Aspergillus or invasive aspergillosis can also cause cellulitis in burn patients which then disseminates from there into the blood. For invasive aspergilloma, we treat it with voriconazole. Aspergilloma voriconazole. But if it's not invasive aspergillosis and you just have something like ABPA or your allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, you will need to hand out glucocorticoids or itraconazole for the ABPA. The next opportunistic fungi is Candida albicans and other species of Candida. So Candida is a yeast endogenous to our mucous membrane and normal flora. And Candida albicans yeast form germ tubes at 37 degrees in serum. Candida also forms pseudo-hyphae and true hyphae when it invades tissues. It'll do you good to remember that non-pathogenic candida do not form pseudo-hyphae and true hyphae. Alright, so what are some diseases and predisposing conditions that we need to worry about? The first one is perlesh. Perlesh is otherwise known as angular colitis. It's a chronic inflammation of the corners of the mouth and it's caused by candida and secondary to malnutrition. The next is oral thrush. And oral thrush is due to prematurity, antibiotic use, immunocompromised patients, and AIDS. Esophagitis is the next one and that can be due to antibiotic, again your immunocompromised host and AIDS. Candida can also cause gastritis due to antibiotic use, immunocompromised hosts, and AIDS. The next one is septicemia. Septicemia is caused with endophthalmitis and macronodular skin lesions seen in immunocompromised, cancer, and IV or intravenous patients. Endocarditis can also be caused by candida with transient septicemias or IV drug abusers. Candida endocarditis seen in IV drug users. Yeast vaginitis is another disease caused by candida and it's a particular problem with diabetic women. Diabetes. And the last is a chronic mucocutaneous candidiasis or endocrine defects, the energy leading to candida. Ooh, one more thing. Candida can also cause cutaneous infections, and cutaneous infections are usually seen in patients with obesity and babies. You can also see cutaneous candidiasis with patients using rubber gloves. So you diagnose candida through KOH, and you'll see pseudohyphae or true hyphae as well as budding yeasts. You diagnose the septicemia through culture lab identification or biochemical tests or the formation of germ tubes. You treat it with topical imidazole or oral imidazole. You can also give nystatin. If it's a disseminated disease, you can give your patients amphotericin B or fluconazole. Since this is the first time I talked about nystatin in this section or in this chapter, nystatin, nystatin has the same mechanism of action as amphotericin B. It binds ergosterol, a major component of the fungal cell membrane. And remember, just like amphotericin B, nystatin forms pores. Our next opportunistic fungi is Cryptococcus neoformans. Cryptococcus neoformans. Cryptococcus neoformans is an encapsulated yeast. Cryptococcus is encapsulated. And it's monomorphic. Its environmental source is soil enriched with pigeon droppings. Cryptococcus. 
antigen droppings. Predisposing conditions include meningitis or Hodgkin's as well as AIDS. Cryptococcus is the dominant meningitis, meaning that cryptococcus is the leading cause of meningitis in patients afflicted with HIV. Yes, cryptococcus can cause acute pulmonary symptoms, but they're usually asymptomatic and you'll usually see those with pigeon breeders. So you diagnose cryptococcus meningitis with CSF. You do a detection of the capsular antigen in the cerebrospinal fluid and you do that with latex particle agglutination or counter immunoelectrophoresis. And even though it misses 50% of the time, you can also diagnose cryptococcus with India ink stain. You do an India ink mount of the CSF sediments to find budding yeasts with capsular halos. And of course, you can culture cryptococcus and you'll find that it's ureates positive. Remember your P chunks mnemonic. P chunks is Proteus, Cryptococcus, H. pylori, Urea plasma, Nocardia, Klebsiella, Staph, other than Aureus. And you can treat Cryptococcus with Amphotericin B plus 5 Lucidazine. Cryptococcus with AMB plus 5 FC. You continue administering those two until the patient becomes a febrile and culture negative. That's a minimum of 10 weeks. And then you just administer fluconazole after that. Fluconazole. Our next opportunistic fungi is Mucorhizopus absidia, altogether known as Zygomycophyta. They are non-septate filamentous fungi. They are broad, ribbon-like septate hyphae with 90-degree angles on branches. The environmental source is soil, and what's inhaled are called sporangiophores. They cause a rhinocerebral infection caused by mucor and other zygomycophyta. And when I say rhinocerebral, I'm talking about these fungi penetrating without respect to the anatomical barriers progressing rapidly from your sinuses and into the brain tissue. You'll see it characterized by paranasal swelling, necrotic tissue, which means you'll have black ashchars, hemorrhagic exudates from nose and eyes, and mental lethargy. And don't worry, if you're healthy, you're fine. But if you have diabetes and you have ketoacidosis, it's usually seen in ketoacidotic diabetic patients and leukemic patients. Mucor, Rhizopus, Absidia are zygomycophyta, and all three of them will cause this type of disease. I don't need to tell you that this type of disease has a very high fatality rate because if it's rapid growth and invasion of your tissues and your diagnosis through KOH wet mount otherwise known as your potassium hydroxide and you will find broad ribbon-like septate hyphae with 90 degree angles on branches you can KOH that black S char and you will find the aseptate no septum fungal hyphae with right angle branches you can also do periodic acid shift stain and fungal cultures but why do all that when you have a very limited amount of time to save your patient this thing grows fast it invades quickly and it kills quickly. So again, doctors, you're going to be looking for ketoacidotic patients or leukemic patients with rhinocerebral infections. And then you do that KOH and you'll see the non-septate irregular with hyphae branching at 90 degree angles. That's your clinical clue for the exam. And the next opportunistic fungi is Pneumocystis gerovici or gerovicii. It's formerly known as Pneumocystis carinii. Pneumocystis is an obligate extracellular parasite. You will not be seeing this thing inside cells. You see it with a silver stain. Pneumocystis silver stain. With pneumocystis pneumonia, you'll have interstitial pneumonia. That's pneumonia in AIDS patients even with prophylaxis. And the mean CD4 is 26. It's not just in AIDS patients though. You'll see them in malnourished babies, premature neonates, and some other immunocompromised adults and kids. 
The symptoms of pneumocystis pneumonia is fever, cough, shortness of breath, sputum is non-productive except for smokers. No sputum except in smokers. So what pneumocystis does is that it attaches to and kills type 1 pneumocytes, causing excess replication of type 2 pneumocytes, and then they damage the alveolar epithelium altogether. And if you guys remember your anatomy and histology, type 1 pneumocytes are the cells that are very flat and thin. That's where the gas exchange occurs. Well, the type 2 pneumocytes are cuboidal and thick, and they're the ones that secrete the pulmonary surfactants. It's the type 2 pneumocytes that are capable of cellular division that gives rise to more type 2 than type 1 when lung tissue is damaged. So what do you have? You have a bunch of cells that are making surfactant, making you cough, non-productive, unless if it's in smokers. And the damage is brought upon your fungi, which are pneumocystes gerovici. Okay, so you'll have serum that leaks into the alveoli producing an exudate with a foamy or honeycomb appearance on your H and E stain. The silver stain will reveal the holes in the exudate and are actually the cysts and trophozoites which do not stain with H and E. The x-ray will show patchy infiltrative ground glass appearance and the lower lobe periphery may be spared. The diagnosis again is silver staining cysts in bronchial alveolar lavage fluids or biopsy. And how do you treat pneumocystes? It's with TMP-SMX or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for mild or for prophylactic, but for moderate to severe, you give Dapsone. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole for mild, Dapsone for moderate to severe with pneumocystes gerovicii. Yay! Since we have a little bit of time, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to be giving you the clinical clues and you're going to tell me what fungus is involved. And what I'm giving you are the important clinical clues that are vital and crucial for you to know for the exam. And let's begin. Name the fungi that is inside the macrophage and is smaller than a red blood cell. Seen with palatal or tongue ulcers, splenomegaly, and pancytopenia. It's associated with bird and bat droppings or spelunking. And you find this in Mississippi and Ohio River Valleys. And the answer is histoplasma. Say hi to Miss Ohio. Hi for Ohio, hi for histoplasma, and Miss for Mississippi and Missouri. And that's how I remember it. Say hi to Miss Ohio. The next fungi is broad-based budding, seen with inflammatory lung disease and disseminates to the bone or skin and may mimic SCC or squamous cell carcinoma. It forms granulomatous nodules and is seen in eastern and central United States as well as the Great Lakes. And the answer is Blastomyces. Blastomyces, particularly Blastomyces dermatitidis, is is a potentially very serious disease. It starts with a subtle pneumonia, but then it progresses within one to six months to a disseminated phase that causes lesions to form capillary beds throughout the body, and there is a serious nervous system and bone marrow involvement. Blastomyces is BBBB. Blastomycosis is broad-based budding, and it's bad. And also, how I remember that Blastomyces is on or around the Great Lakes is that when you have a great time, you have a blast. 
The next organism in question is... It disseminates to skin and bone. It causes erythema nodosum or desert bumps. It can cause arthralgias. We also call desert rheumatism. It can also cause meningitis. This fungi is associated with dust exposure in endemic areas. And when I say endemic areas, you're going to see this in southwestern United States and California. Its pathologic feature is that it is a spherial with endospores. The answer is coccidoides, causing coccidoidal mycosis. Remember that a coccidoides spherule is much larger than RBC. This one is similar to blastomycosis, and it's more in males than in females, and it's budding yeast with a captain's wheel formation, much larger than an RBC, but it's from Latin America. And the answer is paracoccidoides. Here is your clinical clue. Patient with blotchy hypopigmentation and KOH scraping shows spaghetti and meatballs. And when I say spaghetti and meatballs, I'm talking about yeast clusters and short curved septate hyphae. And the answer is malassezia furfur, causing pityriasis or tinea versicolor. Your next clinical clue is, your patient has a scaly pruritic ring with lesions of skin. When you do a KOH prep, you see a scraping and it shows your arthroconidia and hyphae. Doctor, what does your patient most likely have? The answer is dermatophyte. Yes, it was a very general question, but it'll give me a good chance to go over this. Dermatophytes are broken into three genera. One is trichophyton, which infects skin, hair, and nails. The second one is microsporum, which infects hair and skin. And the third one is epidermophyton, which only infects nail and skin. In other words, microsporum, no effect on nails. Epidermophyton, no effect on hair. Alright doctor, your next clinical clues are, your patient has subcutaneous or lymphocutaneous mycetomas. Your patient is a gardener, could be a florist or a basket weaver, and the third clue for your patient doctor is his pus has cigar-shaped yeasts. The etiologic agent in question is Sporothrix schenkii. Important to remember that the environmental form is hyphae with rosettes and sleeves of conidia, while the tissue form of Sporothrix is cigar-shaped yeasts. Alright doctor, your next clinical clue is, your patient comes in with asthma, cystic fibrosis, and growing mucus plugs. Your patient is showing some cavitary lung lesions, like a fungus ball. Patient might have burn, cellulitis, or invasion, and your patient could be immunocompromised, and have pneumonia and meningitis. And what you see through the microscope are septate hyphae at acute angles. And the answer is Aspergillus fumigatus. Alright doctor, great job. Your next patient is immunocompromised, has an overuse of antibiotics, with thrush spreading down the GI tract, and has septicemia. On top of that, your patient is an IV drug abuser and has endocarditis. You do a germ tube test and it demonstrates pseudohyphae and hyphae. What is your ideologic agent? The answer is Candida albicans. Candida has pseudohyphae. Great stuff, doctor. And your next clinical clues are pigeon breeder. And this pigeon breeder has acute pulmonary symptoms. The patient could also have a predisposing condition, possibly of Hodgkin's or AIDS. And you do an India ink mount of the CSF and shows encapsulated yeasts. Doctor, help me out here. 
And the answer is Cryptococcus neoformans. The soil is enriched with pigeon droppings, and those pigeon droppings will have Cryptococcus neoformans. But sometimes bird and bat droppings can also have what? They can also have histoplasma. So remember to always know the difference between the two. Doctor, your next patient is coming in and he has uncontrolled diabetes for quite some time. He also has ketoacidosis. Your patient could also be leukemic with rhinocerebral infection. Doc, you did a biopsy and you found that they had non-septate irregular width hyphae branching at 90 degree angles. What could we possibly have as an etiologic agent? The answer is our zygomycophyta, which are mucor, rhizopus, and absidia. Great job, doctor. Now to our very last question. Your patient comes in, either is a premature infant or has HIV with atypical pneumonia. Let's say that the CD count is below 50. And when you do a biopsy, you find that there is a honeycomb exudate and silver staining cysts. Your x-ray shows ground glass appearance or patchy infiltrates. What is my ideologic agent? And the answer is Pneumocystes gerovici. Woo! Great job. Yay! Thank you for stopping by here at USMLE Listen Microbiology Chapter 8 All About Fungi. Email us at usmlelisten at gmail.com for your questions or suggestions on how we can improve and initiate your auditory learning for the USMLE Step 1. Sources for USMLE Listen include First Aid Osmosis, UWorld, and Kaplan Study Guides. This is Mark Labella. You can follow or message me on Instagram at markjlabella. See you on the next episode for your auditory learning here at USMLE. USMLE Listen.